Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Welcome to Frau Pow, where your hosts, Auden Rags. So today we re-interview Danny, which is the first time that we are having a second interview with somebody. So it's super exciting for us. Um, Danny is also the first person that we interviewed like a year ago who wasn't in a roller derby circle. So like so many milestones. Um, so we interviewed Danny. And we talked to her about her new book, which is called Finding Identity When Chronic Pain Fades. You can find it on Amazon for Kindle or paperback. And really, she wrote this book to kind of cope with the fact that after 16 years of living in intense chronic pain, dealing with a Vicodin addiction, um, having to deal with multiple neurosurgeons and military issues, you know, blocking her from going to see specialists. Danny finally had a surgery that allowed her to go pain-free in her shoulder. Um, so she wrote this book as a coping mechanism. And I'm not going to say too much more because I think she does a much better job talking about it. But we really hope that you enjoy this episode. So let's start. I don't know what we're starting with. Well, yeah, because it's kind of weird because you're the first person that we have interviewed twice. So that's really exciting. Good milestone. Yeah. I think we... I think that's fantastic. Yeah. It's like actually a year ago. Was it literally a year ago? I think it's almost exactly a year ago. What what a way to celebrate. <laughs> so exciting. Well, I'm really happy to be back and I appreciate you, uh, you know, having me back on again. Yeah. Well... You are the first person that we invited back officially. And also, wasn't wasn't she the first one we interviewed that we didn't, like, wasn't in our, like, roller derby circle? Yes. Oh, big milestones. You've been a part of it all. I think I'm just going to change my name to first. Crap, <laughs> <laughs> how first? <laughs> well, it's really great to have you back, and I'm really excited um, to hear about your new book and um, hear about every, I have so many things I want to ask you about it. I'm looking over Rags' notes right now. Um, but, so I guess the best place to start would be, um, tell us a little bit about your book. What's it called? Uh, so it's called um, Finding Identity When Chronic Pain Fades. Um, you can find it both on uh, Kindle and Amazon in uh, paperback and uh, electronic format. And basically, the the real, real basics about it is that it's a book about the journey I took from having an injury called thoracic outlet syndrome, wherein, uh, and I'll tell you a little bit more about that in a bit, but basically I had an injury from a horse fall that lasted for a long time and was essentially ignored by the military, by the veterans of Affairs for approximately 16 years until finally I ended up getting the surgery and that literally ended 16 years of pretty horrendous and disabling pain 
And I thought I would just be super, super happy about it, which I am. Um, but it came with a lot of unexpected issues, such as losing little pieces of who I thought I was, because I refer to the book in the book a couple of times to the uh, chronic pain as an unwanted traveler. So I decided that as a cathartic experience, I would write this book for myself. And eventually I decided, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and get a cover done. I'm going to have it edited and then I'm going to put it out and maybe it can help a few other people because this story of mine is the story of millions of people around the country who not only go through chronic pain, but are essentially ignored, uh, you know, when they're talking about it to so-called medical professionals. So mm -hmm. that's the, the most basic synopsis I can give you. Yeah, I thought that that was really interesting because something that I think about a lot is um, not chronic pain, but a chronic condition um, and dealing with my anxiety and sort of my mental health like that has become a really big part of my identity. But also what's going to happen if I'm having like a good day, you know, then I don't really it's kind of hard because I'm I feel like having that be a big part of my identity, then it's like is it okay for me to have a good day when I'm not really feeling anxious or I'm not feeling sad? Um, and, you know, is my goal ultimately to not have anxiety? Like, that's kind of scary for me to think about. Um, not saying that's possible or not possible, but, like, I don't know. It's something that I talk about a lot in therapy. Um, just, you know, trying to acknowledge those things that have made you who you are, but not, like you're saying, like, not treating them as an unwanted traveler. Oh, absolutely. And of course, you're absolutely not. Uh, you're not welcome to have good days. Never, ever. I promise. <laughs> um, and you can't see my face because this is a podcast, but please, I'm absolutely being sarcastic there. But that's something that everybody, whether it's uh, chronic illness, whether it's chronic pain, whether it's, um, you know, like a lasting um uh, disability or like mental health condition is we don't feel like we're really allowed to smile. I mean, I get people in my, or we also don't even feel worthy of having like a diagnosis. Um, just last week, I had somebody who's got one of the more profound um, uh, abuse histories I've ever seen. And I talked to her about PTSD and she's like, PTSD. I was like, you know, I'm not a soldier. I've never been a, you know, a police officer or anything like that. And it led to a conversation I've heard so, so many times of, like literally said to me, I don't deserve to have this diagnosis. And I felt the same way. Well, you know, yes, you can look at a CAT scan and an MRI of my shoulder and my neck and see that I had this injury. But because, you know, one day I had like a really good day where it didn't hurt at all. Like I'm not allowed to tell people that I have chronic pain, which is silly to say when you hear it from somebody else, but it feels very real. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, so tell us a little bit about um, your injury. So back in, uh, oh goodness, a long time ago. So I was born in the 70s myself. And um, I had, uh, you know, I was the type of person that uh, never wanted to ride horses back when I thought that I was male and didn't know who I actually was. And uh, I, uh, my mom, um, through an unfortunate incident, uh, ended up, you know, being awarded some money and we, you know, got ourselves a horse and she wanted me to ride. She wanted me to ride. And I was like, nope, nope, nope. And then I ended up, of course, absolutely loving it. And the next thing I know, a year later, I'm jumping, you know, I'm doing competitions and it's all going fantastic. Uh, one day we were we were having a ride and it was one of the most glorious jumping sessions I've ever had where it's like I can do nothing wrong. 
you know, and I'm sure out in the arena, you know, you guys have those days too, or when you're practicing, where like everything is perfect. And so I say, let's just do one more course. And that's like, you know, a round of eight jumps for what I used to do. I was like, one more course. And of course, in typical Chicago fashion, it's a million degrees outside. It's 500% humidity. I don't realize I'm sweating. I don't realize I feel like I'm about to pass out. And so my trainer says to me, like, are you sure you want to do one more line? And my only response was, is, you know, my horse okay? Is he doing okay? And they're like, yeah, he can handle it. Can you? And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. So we do this thing called the courtesy circle, which when you actually do a show, you do one circle before you actually go into uh, your jump line. So you're not judged at that um, circle. And it kind of gets you set up, gets you in the mindset, gets your trotter canter going. And then as I'm approaching the first jump, I go over it. And then I end up clearing the first line. And as I come around to the second line, um, I end up uh, blacking out right before the um, uh, like the, the third jump in the series. And the next thing I know, I go down. Um, I end up catching the standard, which is the vertical pull in my left jaw. Um, I end up landing on the ground and dislocating my left knee, dislocating my left shoulder, getting a neck injury, and uh, nearly breaking my right wrist. And then, of course, you know, various back injuries and whatnot. Um, Without being too graphic, uh, I actually woke up when they were fixing a certain thing uh, in my shoulder, and that was not really a good time. And then, you know, everything was kind of okay for a while. Then I went into the military, and I ended up falling on the ice twice in one week on the same exact shoulder with the arm outstretched. And that's what uh, the surgeon really believes is what caused, like, the true injury. And then for two and a half years the uh, military doctors refused to let me see a surgeon, which I thought was just absolutely bizarre. So they sent me to PT just an untold amount of times. And the physical therapist is telling me, I can't help you. You know, you need to see a surgeon. And so that's, that's where it all started. So it was certainly the first injury, but then uh, the falls on the ice is what really exacerbated it. Jeez, Louise, that's a lot, a lot, you know, not only just dealing with, of recovery from all of those accidents but especially in the same spot but just having them tell you that they'll cover the wrong thing thing something that's not actually gonna that must have been so frustrating i mean it was frustrating it was rage inducing um there was a day i remember being in the hospital because i've had so many injuries going on but i remember uh there was a period i talked briefly in the book about this as well um where i also injured my bag and there's a type of numbness called saddlebag numbness and again without being too graphic it goes from your backside all the way up the front um and it's usually indicative of a nerve injury like right in your spine not necessarily that you're going to be paralyzed but it's something that like oh you need to go to the hospital and I ended up going to the hospital and the same doctor that passed me off before he walks into my room and I see him and I'm like oh great here we go he did a very hands-off you know like barely even looked at me or touched me gave me some morphine and then left and said everything was totally fine and I remember my partner she like looked at me and she's like are you okay and I mean it was just like the ugliest of ugly crying because it's like I just felt so invalidated like you know and I was like, I know I'm, I know I'm hurt. I know I'm not faking this, you know. I know that this is like really difficult for me to get out of bed, you know, in the morning, and to have a so-called back specialist tell me like, oh nope, it's just a, you know, superficial, uh, you know, pain and whatnot. It's just, yeah, it's difficult. So to be sent back and forth and to be told like, nope, you know, you just got some muscle pain. You know, here's some Vicodin and move on with your day is like really just a range of emotions. Yeah, just take some opiates. You'll be fine. Don't worry about it. Mm-hmm. 
And that's what I did for two and a half years. And then, you know, I'm, you know, a recovering addict. I've been uh, clean for 11 years as of this May. So I'm doing pretty well with that. But uh, that was uh, certainly a rough time, too. I'm just, I think we're all just sitting here shaking our heads because I think all of us know what it's like to have a chronic illness or chronic pain. And like you, Danny, you know my story on chronic pain and I think everybody in this room knows my issues with chronic pain and everything but like I know that the one thing that's not I know that the one thing that can probably stop my chronic pain is a lobotomy and that's like off the table but like for you you had the option to stop it but it took 16 years to get there Mm-hmm. And well, the interesting part is, too, is that the actual surgery, the first surgery I had was actually correct the damage in the shoulder. That's the first two and a half years that they wouldn't let me see a surgeon. And they finally let me see a surgeon named Dr. Honor up in North Dakota, who I'm sure is long retired, one of the, one of the great uh, doctors I've ever met. And I remember it was a Tuesday morning. I was still in uniform. I went down there and he said, uh, hey, um, you know, tell me what's going on. And he had just like a super hands on approach. You know, before I, you know, before we got five minutes into it, he gave me, you know, a shot, um, like a nerve block, just so I could be out of pain for a few days or a few weeks, which was just fantastic. And then he said, um, have you had MRIs? Have you had x-rays? I was like, yeah. And he's like, you know what? Let me just do one more thing. And so I go to the x-ray, which is in his office. They take it. It takes all of like two minutes. I come back. I'm sitting there just like, you know, kind of tapping my foot on the ground thinking, you know, okay, this sounds good, but I've had things sound good before. And he comes back in. He said, what are you doing tomorrow morning? And I said, tomorrow morning, like what? And it was like at 6 a.m. He's like, I've actually bumped um, one of the surgeries and we're putting you on the table. He said he was PO'd. You know, he was absolutely furious and said uh, a lot of four letter things. He said the Air Force should have had you on the table the next day. He said, basically, if they would have had you on the table the next day, it should have been a 45-minute surgery just to correct a couple things. And instead, it was two and a half hours of partial reconstruction. So, yeah, that's uh, kind of where I came from. We're all just, we're sitting here wide-eyed. <laughs> that's your radio silence. We're just wide-eyed and shaking our heads. So, mm-hmm. how, many, how many surgeries have you had for this? For specifically for the shoulder, um, uh, two minor procedures and then two major surgeries. So the first surgery, of course, was the one I just told you about. And then I had um, three different uh, uh, procedures where they actually go in with like a, a triplet of needles. And I mean, I guess I can throw a trigger warning out for anybody who's afraid of needles. But uh, basically, they kind of dig around and find nerves and, you know, like pump me full of all sorts of uh uh, steroids to get the pain to go down. Oh, I had to and do by that doing for my that, knee. Re- yeah, and I it's did. not fun because a lot of people think like it's in and out and you're done. No, like it's like you have to sit there and it's with my knee. I could see the whole thing happening because I they had mm-hmm. me sit up, um, and I had to get a genicular knee nerve block. Mm. I think three times before I said I didn't want to do it anymore because my insurance won't pay for like corrective um, insoles for my knee. So, you know, that's cool. Yeah, something that would probably cost maybe like 30 to 50, maybe $100 and save them a lot more money instead of having to have future surgeries, but they don't want to give that to you. Yep. And so then um, then comes the pinnacle of my life, uh, which was just changed everything. So after three of these, they had uh, they had proof that this was thoracic outlet uh, uh, syndrome. And they sent me to a very brilliant uh, neurosurgeon in 
analyst named Dr. Barbaro, who unfortunately has uh, retired, which is a major, major loss. And I mean, I can hold it in this time, but I've told the story a few times. This is usually where I tear up. He actually met me and he said he was planning on retiring, but he stayed for a couple of weeks more to make sure he could do my procedure. And he said that um, this is yet again, they should have done this years ago. And it would have cut out, you know, like 10 to 12 years of chronic pain. So, you know, he did the right thing. He had me see one more surgeon to make sure it wasn't something else. And then I came back a couple of months later. Uh, he scheduled it. You know, I went to the um, Indianapolis University Hospital, which, by the way, is like amazing. And, um, you know, I went in there, had the operation, uh, had like a, some amazing, you know, nurses in the actual uh, like operating theater and whatnot. And I remember saying uh, to the anesthesiologist, because uh, I'm a silly little, uh, silly little gal sometimes, I looked up and said, uh, you know, good night. And the next thing I know, I wake up and, you know, surgery's over. And um, it was a really, really bad week after that, um, largely because, of course, the pain in my neck was, you know, pretty intense. And um, because of the fact that I had to stop eating for 24 hours, I'm kind of a caffeine hound. So I stopped caffeine. I also stopped, you know, sugar. And I had to stop taking my nighttime meds because, you know, they helped me sleep. So I was like withdrawing from three things. And so everything would be like my dog would come over and say, like, you know, how are you doing? And I'd be like, oh, hi, baby. And then I'd be crying like I just saw like a sad commercial or something, you know. <laughs> And then, of course, the pain started to fade, and then the chronic pain was still there. And then all of a sudden, I remember three months later, I wake up, and I'm like, why does my shoulder not hurt anymore? Why is my arm not completely dead and nerve? And now here I am, you know, like months later, and I haven't had even like uh, a single second of nerve pain, which is just, it's bizarre after 16 years. I'm still not used to it almost a year later. Once again, we're just all sitting here because we're like, how how does this happen? Um, so now that you have had the surgery, you wrote the book, you just said that like you still aren't used to it almost a year later. But how have you like, aside from writing the book, because I know that was a coping mechanism to kind of dealing with the fact that you kind of lost that identity. Um, like, what have you found along the way? I guess is what I want to ask. Like, as you're writing the book, as you're going through this new period of self-discovery of being almost a year pain-free. Well, I found a lot of a lot more value in myself than I thought I had, you know. So um, I'm sure I mentioned this the last time we were together. I uh, I am a psychotherapist, uh, you know, and I work with chronic pain and PTSD. And I have found that um, I mean, like a lot of things, like cer certain uh, like surface things, um, because I still have plenty of problems. Um, I have uh, chronic headaches that I still deal with. I also have something called alpha one antitrypsin deficiency, which means I lack. Uh, the protective layer of proteins for both my lungs and my liver. So, you know, even though I'm 40 years old, I actually have COPD at this point in time, even though I've like smoked literally one cigarette, you know, and stuff like that. But I cope with it. But uh, I certainly found that medical marijuana is a thousand times better than opiates. And guess what? I don't feel like I'm getting addicted, which is fantastic. But as far as like the route to self-discovery, I discovered like that there is more to me than just this defining characteristic, because what was really odd was the first thing I lost was, um, and I'm going to put this as an analogy, 
a lot of times when people believe that they're, you know, cis hetero or that they're straight or whatever it might be, and then they come out, they almost sort of lose like that sort of cool part about them. Like they were the good ally. They were such a good ally that, you know, everything just sort of made sense to them. And it was something that like set them apart. And it's the same sort of thing. Like when I came out as trans, you know, like I come to find out like, which is great. I feel 10 times more comfortable, but like, I was like, oh, you know, I used to be, you know, um, you know, the cisgendered male who, you know, was like when someone said they were trans, I'd be like, come on, you know, tell me what your, you know, uh, pronouns are, you know, what can I do for you, you know, et cetera. And the same thing happened with the pain. It's like, it used to be the comment was like, look at what Danny does even though, or despite, you know, this shoulder pain and look what she's accomplished despite the shoulder pain. And now it's just, look what I've accomplished, which if you think about it is nothing different. You know, if I do something amazing right now, it's still amazing, but you lose that little qualifier of like, oh, you did this despite, you know, blank, blank, blank. And that was kind of hard for me to swallow because, um, and I'll tell you in a moment, uh, the story about how that all came about, but, uh, you know, finding out that there's so much more to me that was buried by, you know, all the pain and, you know, what I was attaching to myself. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've been on this journey with you off, offline because we've talked about this a lot. And I know that you know um, my side of things, but for the listeners, like, just listening to your story kind of like helps me as somebody who knows that there's no surgery um but does i can now think to myself like i can do this without that qualifier like i'm trying to reframe exactly i'm trying to reframe my thinking because like i don't i'm not gonna you know have a surgery that's gonna magically make my neurological issues go away like that's not going to happen but i'm trying like after hearing your story and talking to you as you went through it and now hearing it now I realized that like I am trying to reframe how I talk about myself instead of saying like I can do this despite my neuropathy or despite my migraines. I'm just doing it, you know. Right. And that doesn't that's yeah, that's something that's really I think hard for me and thinking about the things that I can do or who I can relate to or even just doing this podcast and like trying to work on like my mental health has been really hard because you know it's really important to me to talk about this stuff and so I want to be able to do that in spite of like my mental health struggles um but if I'm working on it like what does that mean you know yeah it's yeah it's hard and I think also for me and like my back pain and all that sort of stuff. And like, I do something and people are like, that's so great. And I'm like, well, you know what? Fuck you. And like, fuck all these haters. Cause I can do this because, you know, I deal with like anxiety and depression and like chronic pain and all the stuff. But, you know, like if those things went away, I would still be doing that and it would still be great. And it doesn't make it less awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, and this whole thing came like there was there was two little inspirations for me to write this book. And I highly I know I'm here to promote my book, but um, there's a woman out there named Kay Redfield Jameson. She's a, a very like eminent uh, clinical psychologist um, who has pretty profound bipolar disorder. And she wrote uh, a couple of uh, books about her life. And one of the last chapters I remember she talks about she's in this real swanky, ritzy New York party. And 
she, you know, like finally just says after like having a like, you know, super manic and mixed episode, you know, where she was once again thinking about, uh, um, you know, ending her life or like doing some self-harm. And she finally tells like some, you know, like fabulously wealthy lawyer this story. And the next thing she knows, 10 minutes later, she's got people surrounding her saying like, you know, you know what? I have anxiety or my aunt has bipolar and so forth. And that was like, to me, I was like, you know, my story is not even it's like not even like really my story. Like it's my words, you know, it's my exact thing, but like how many people like you two are right here, you know, and how many other people do you know in your life, outside your life, people that you've done like, you know, other podcasts with that have these same issues who are ignored and validated or feel like they're just completely worthless, you know, and not worth it. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, I feel like, I feel like this can be said about almost like every single person I know, because like almost every single person I know has some sort of mental health or chronic health issue in which they have to deal with it every day. And I feel like a lot of people use this qualifier of like, well, I'm doing it in spite of. Um, but yeah, I feel like the, <laughs> I feel like this is just a shared human condition. A lot of us can relate to this. It's just that I think a lot of us don't want to verbalize it because I think we're afraid of what it can mean because it does mean that we are going to lose our identities. I mean, like, I know for myself that sometimes that means that I like I try not so hard in therapy sometimes because like I'm kind of afraid of losing this part of my identity, you know, and it it also means that sometimes I'm just like, okay, well, I'm just in pain, so this is it. This is how I'm going to live my life, you know, or I'm just going to be depressed and this is it. This is how I'm going to live my life. When there's like your ex, but you're also every other thing about you. So I, I do think that this is a shared human condition. I think this is something that a lot of people can relate to, whether they verbalize it or not. Yeah. And as I told uh, you, um, you know, like privately, I, you know, like if 10 people buy this book and they get something out of it, then that's like fascinating to me. And maybe if they tell 10 other people, you know, that it's actually OK to not be OK. I mean, I'm certainly not the person who came up with that statement, but it is so stinking true. Like you can actually be not OK. And that's all right. So what was your process like in writing this book? So you've been you've talked about like how you were feeling like it would be really cathartic for you to just sort of write your story down. But um, what did that writing process look like? Well, I started with the, I've wanted to write a book for a very long time. Um, and I, t I kept having, I've, I've got literally a notebook full of ideas of books that I want to write, um, you know, but that's just, I couldn't connect with any of them. And I was just like, you know, why don't I just tell my story? Like, who cares if anyone actually likes it? Why don't I just tell my story and see what happens? You know, and I told this and I started the process with saying to myself, it doesn't matter if one person buys it or a million people buy it. Just write it for yourself. That's it. Um, told Rags, I said, uh, you know, my goal was if one person buys it, I'll be super, super happy, you know. And so I started writing. Um, I just I tried to do the whole thing like I'm going to make myself write at least two pages a day. Oh, that fell apart after a week. Cause some days I'm like, nah, I'm really tired. Um, some days I would write two pages. Some days it would be 12, you know, and it just kept like kind of coming out. Um, so I really made sure not to set like a like a hardcore goal. 
Um, the only real goal I set was just uh, getting to, um, you know, I knew my editor had um, in, in like several months a couple of really big projects that, you know, I would have to be pushed aside for. So that was like a loose goal, but very, very doable. And um, it was very much like, you know, it just I'm just going to sit down when I feel like it. I tried writing from different areas, from our porch. You know, I tried writing, you know, from one of my offices, then the other office. Then I went out to the barn and wrote, you know, just everywhere I could find, you know, and just kind of remembered something and just said, like, oh, man, you know, and then I would slow down and actually have a visible memory, you know, like when you're moving out of a house or something and you pick something up and you're like, your partner's like, um, honey, can we like actually pack some crap? And you're like, yeah, we can. But you remember when so-and-so did this? And you're like, oh, my God, I just need you to stop now. So there was a lot of that. That's, you know, a lot of the breaks I took. Um, and there were a few moments where I had to find some information just to make sure I had my dates and everything accurate, you know, and what happened accurate. But beyond that, it was just so, like, super personal, um, including one of the greatest uh, bamboozles that's ever happened to me thanks to, uh, you know, Rags here, um, who has, you know, uh, both Rags and um, her her uh, lovely significant other have become kind of like an adopted <laughs> sister to me because my brother's an absolute piece of you-know-what. Um, so they adopted me, you know, and uh, we kind of got the sibling thing going on. And I asked her, I said, can you do me a favor? If you just happen to know someone who does graphics art, I need a book cover. And so here's Reg saying, you know what, I think I've got someone and asking me questions. And the whole time for like a week straight, I was like, why can't I just talk to the artist myself, you know? But I was like, eh, I don't want to be rude and ask. And then all of a sudden I get this email saying, you know, surprise. And I'm like, why is, you know, why is why is she emailing me right now? And there's a book cover and I'm like, you son of a bitch. And I was like, that's why you haven't let me talk to anybody, you know, and so forth. So that was probably one of my favorite moments of writing this thing was just to find out like, oh, my sister did this. And that was really, really wonderful. So yeah, it turns out she's actually pretty nice. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, I don't want to say I'm biased, but the two of them are pretty fabulous, you know, but uh, we are. Know, it's just the fun I had once. <laughs> Well, we were very happy to assist you in this. And, you know, both my partner and I, uh, we've talked to you a lot during this process of mm -hmm. when you were writing your book. So we felt like, not that we necessarily had a personal stake, but we, we personally knew you and how you were going through it. So as soon as you asked me if I knew a graphic artist to design a cover, Chrissy and I like had a plan right off the bat. <laughs> So, so was the plan in the beginning to make sure you tricked me? Yes. Oh, my God. I, I adore you, too. I really do. <laughs> that was the plan right off the bat. But, yeah, I mean, because we, we knew your story ahead of time, and both Chrissy and I can identify with your story. You know, as I said, a lot of people can identify with your story. And because we really strongly believed in the story that you're trying to tell, um, we we wanted to give you we wanted to be a part of it in some way, whether it was talking to you or um, if we could help you find somebody to design the book cover mm -hmm. and also, you know, let you come onto the podcast to talk about it. Um, <laughs> but it was, it's something that I've struggled with. This is something like, I know that I've gone through multiple medications and I feel like one of the reasons why a lot of the medications or one of the treatments didn't work was because I didn't really give it my all like I didn't let it have like the placebo effect I mean I know that's like that's kind of bullshit 
But there's a part of me that's like, well, what if I actually bought into the medications a little more and actually let myself try to be cured or let myself have some relief? And there's a part of me that's like, well, that's a little bit of bullshit. But there's a part of me that's like, well, maybe it's actually kind of true. And I think I think it's largely because I am so afraid of losing that part of my identity because it is very much who I am and it has been since I was 16 years old. And I think that a lot of people do feel that way about whether it's depression or anxiety or chronic migraine disease or Crohn's disease or, you know, the whole gambit of diseases that we can have neurologically or otherwise. And we just really believed in the story and what you were trying to say. So that's why we... We wanted to play this joke on you, but also help you out. <laughs> and it was so, it, it was the most divine joke that I think I've ever been a part of. So I greatly appreciate that. And, you know, and really what it comes down to is like, yes, I'm happy that I got the catharsis. Yes, I'm happy that I can finally, you know, call myself author. You know, I've already got something else I'm working on right now. And that's all wonderful. But really, it's just like, this is. I'll say it again. It's my words. It's my actual dates and chronology and whatnot, but it's really not my story. And I know that sounds so cliche, but it's not, you know, I mean, this is like I could, you know, throw a rock down the street and hit like five people or something. I guarantee you four of them are probably having something like this, you know, and maybe the fifth person knows someone like this. It's just it's everywhere. And I think that my message, you know, to the to the world, but let's be honest, especially to this fucking country right now is, you know, there's two messages I have to the medical community, grow the fuck up and listen to your patients because you may be the expert in medicine and I will never deny that. I am never going to be one of those people that pretends to know more than a doctor because it's just not true, period. But here's the thing, and this is true. If you two were my patients and you guys were both chronic pain or anxiety, whatever it might be, or neuropathy, yeah, if you want to like, you know, figure out how to do a surgery or to pick the right medication, of course you should be asking me. But there's no way around the fact that you two are the only experts on yourself. I may be an expert in medicine if I were a doctor, but you guys are the experts on you. And it's just, it's shocking how few times and how rare it is that a doctor listens to somebody, especially whether they identify or not uh, somebody who's, you know, uh, assigned female at birth. You know, for example, if you look at, you know, I have this app on my phone that I use in my practice on, it's all about drugs. You know, like every medication we've ever had, like, you know, and use, it's got all the scientific information. What a lot of people don't understand is that it's all largely based on um, AMABs, you know, assigned male at birth, like all the statistics for side effects and whatnot. One of the statistics I found out was that a lot of women, or at least, you know, uh, AFABs um, that die from a heart attack are often come because they were ignored. And it's because because of the chemistry or the way that they're built is like they actually experience uh, pain from heart attacks differently than men, you know? So what would you normally think are like, you know, the main symptoms? Well, you hear it all the time, you know, make sure you pay attention. Do you have left arm pain that radiates? Do you have nausea? Do you have a sense of impending doom, et cetera, et cetera. For women, it can be tooth pain or it can be as simple as left jaw pain that doesn't even radiate, you know, but then there's also that sense of impending doom and you'll go into the ER and they'll be like, oh, you're probably fine. And then look at what happens, you know. So that's message number one. And message number two really is that as hard as it is to say, you know, even if you have something that absolutely doesn't have a cure, you know, try sometimes to believe in yourself. But even if you can't do that, be OK with the fact that, you know, you didn't fail if you didn't believe in yourself. Just know the fact that you had a rough day because ultimately, 
when you look at like I want to give quote unquote a hundred you know percent you know percent every day, a lot of people look at a hundred percent and try to like um you know, compare it to somebody else. I write in my book about my neighbors who are just wonderful people. And uh, these two women, like they do all these things every weekend and it's great. But I'm sitting here like trying to rank myself against them, which is completely unfair to me and to them for that matter. So what I tell people to do is wake up each day and rate yourself at 100, try to do 100% of what you're capable of that day or that moment. And if one day that means, you know, Brexit, you can go out and lift for four hours and that's great. If another day means that the best you can do is get out of bed, eat breakfast and put on clothes and guess what? You did 100%. You know, if you tried, you know, if you did what you did, then just, you know, be able to take a breath and, you know, it, it sounds stupid to say it, but forgive yourself for that because there's actually really nothing to forgive. Yeah. You just like keep hitting the nail on the head. I think what you just said is like a really good way to like wrap everything up. Um, yeah, I think so. I mean, really, other than just again, you know, it's uh, it's called Finding Identity When Chronic Pain Fades. I also have a website, uh, which is therubylight.com, which is the uh, press that I'm starting. But other than that, like, just no big, just no, be okay no big deal. Yourself. I'm going to casually drop that I'm starting at some really cool things. And as I'm exiting <laughs> an interview. You know what? It's a great time. It was a great story. And I was really glad to be able to talk to you guys again. Um, and uh I've said this to Rags, uh, you know, before and Bethany and Chrissy, but I just, you know, I adore you as well. I really love uh, what you guys do and uh, I appreciate you having me. We're happy to have you. You're so easy to talk to and you're great to talk to. And we just, I just adore you. You're a wonderful person. And I'm really glad that I got to share my relationship with you with everybody else. Thanks for listening. We hope that you enjoyed our interview with Danny. Um, and that you go and check her book out. Um, if you want more information about her book, we'll have some info in our show notes. Um, in the meantime, if you want to send us an email, you can uh, reach us at frailpalepodcast at gmail.com. Um, you can also find us on Instagram and Facebook because we're modern millennials and we're on social media at frailpalepodcast.com. Um, yeah, and it feels good to be back in the studio and say together, don't be a dick. dick.